episode 197 of the Pilot, the Pilot Podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. You can get a free three-day trial of the Ground School app by visiting learnthefinerpoints.com. Hi, I'm Steve. I am a current airline pilot, former ferry pilot, and avid drinker of Pilot's Coffee. Aviation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. This is episode 197 featuring Steve Randall. Steve Randall has such a crazy story. I mean, from growing up in the southern part of England to not even knowing it was possible for him to be a pilot, not knowing how he could do it and facing so much adversity along the way. Uh, it is truly an amazing story. And it's so incredible to see him where he is today and what he has overcome to get here. Uh, getting a green card, coming here and, uh, and flying for what he thought was going to be the final airline he ever flew for. And then that airline turns into another airline. So mergers, uh, crazy stories. But uh, it was great having Steve on the podcast. We've been trying to do this for a very, very long time. And I'm glad that we were able to do it. And sometimes with these podcasts, it's just last minute. I'll message someone and be like, hey, you free? And they're like, yeah, all right, let's record. (laughs) It's kind of the best way to do it. Uh, But Aviation, I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, please subscribe to the podcast. Grab your friend's phone, your girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever friend next to you, not even your friend. You can go to Panera and just grab someone's phone and say, hey, subscribe to the podcast. That's how it charts. The more charts, the more people get to see the podcast or else Spotify and Apple hide it for everyone. And it's just a little secret for you. So go ahead and do that. But also like it, review it, go to Pilot the Pilot, check out Pilot's Coffee. Avenation, I hope you enjoy this podcast. So without any further ado, here's Steve Randall. Steve, what's going on? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Well, it's nice to be here, Justin. Thank you. Having listened to almost 200 of these, that's, uh, it's quite, quite, uh, Quite thrilling to hear you say that, I have to say. <laughs> I appreciate that, yeah. I cannot believe that there's been 200 of them. When I started this, I never imagined making more than like five, to be quite honest. Like I, I thought either no one would listen and I'd be embarrassed and I'd just kind of give it up or maybe it would just kind of, you know how people start new things and then just kind of, you do something else, you know? But for some reason, people listened and I just kept going. So here we are, 100, this will be 190, this will be 197 right here. That's crazy. Uh, but but there's a reason. I mean, it's it, it's you. You're 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 very very good at this, and it makes it very very interesting. The people that you pick are very interesting, and I just hope that I can uh, <laughs> I can live up to your uh, previous 196. All the pressure yes. in the world, man. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. It's everyone else. It's not me. So uh, yeah, I appreciate everyone that came on, and, and it makes me look good. So, uh, but let's get started in your story. Uh, I'm very intrigued, and I know we've been trying to do this forever, and it's just kind of never really worked out. But here you are on a overnight, and you are working, and you gave me some time, so I appreciate it. So uh, I don't want to waste any more of it, so you can go out and enjoy the day before you go flying. But why aviation? What was it for you that made you want to get into aviation at a young age or, or later in life, whenever you did? Well, actually, I can pinpoint the exact moment uh, when aviation came into my life. I was nine years old, and uh, I went on a school trip uh, from the south of England out to one of the Channel Islands, which is just uh, one of the islands off of the coast of France. 
and we were heading to Guernsey, and uh, we were on an old Hanley Page Herald, a high wing twin turbo prop, uh, old nineteen sixties airliner. And that didn't really get me very interested. It seemed cool. Um, but I sat by the window uh, right uh, underneath the left wing. And uh, we went into Guernsey, or we were on the approach to Guernsey. And I could, we were in the clouds, and I could see clouds. Um, and then we went around, because obviously they didn't, get, uh, they didn't get the runway. There was a bunch of fog. And so uh, then we... We diverted to another uh, island called Jersey. And once again, I watched the wheels come down. I watched the flaps come down. And I was looking out and looking out, trying to find the runway. And to me, as a nine-year-old looking out of this window, uh, what I saw was cloud, 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 runway, land, um, in a split second. And it, it just consumed me. Uh, I, my mind, I just didn't know how they did it, how they found that runway. Because we were in the clouds, it didn't make any sense to me. And my, my mind started to run a, a million miles an hour. And I thought, well, I've got to go and ask the pilots. Um, and so I purposely tried to stay on the, uh, on the airplane. To the, to the pilots, how did you see the runway? And Unfortunately, my teacher grabbed my arm and, and uh, moved me rapidly to the back of the airplane, so I never got to see the pilots. But for that whole trip, I don't know what we did on that trip. I'm sure it was very interesting, uh, but I, I just couldn't think of anything else except uh, this, this, how did they see the runway? How did they do that? Uh, and it just consumed me. Um, and then once, once I, we flew back uh, to, uh, uh, to Southampton, where where the where we uh, where we left from, um, the the you know the most enjoyable part of that trip was the flight, and that's the thing I was looking forward to. Now, um, unfortunately, I came from um, what would be the equivalent of of a, a welfare upbringing uh, in the U.S. Um, uh, so I was a, 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 a council kid um, in the U.K. So we had no money. Uh, so, you know, the thought of going and, and being able to take another flight um, and try and feed this uh, uh, this interest in aviation was was just out of the question. Uh, but basically, from that point on, I just wanted to I just wanted to learn as much as I possibly could about aviation um, and how these guys saw that runway uh, it, with with all the fog over the over the island. Be crazy. Yeah. So in that situation where you're this kid and you, you kind of have an idea, like, you know, the reality of, of how you grew up and it probably wasn't going to lead you to becoming a pilot or being in that seat. Like you probably had in mind that was going to be crazy expensive, or maybe it was just out of reach for, for someone, like you said, that grew up in the situation that you did. What did you do to one, figure out the answer? How did they land? Like how early did you actually figure that out? Did you go to the library and get the books and figure it out? Or was it uh, over time when you started taking pilot lessons and started figuring out a way to become a pilot? No, I did go to the library and I, I, I got as many books as I could. And I think I sort of figured it out, but not quite. Um, the, 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 when I actually figured it out, um, so, so my, my dad knew that I had this interest because I wouldn't stop talking about aviation. 
And so there's a new aviation museum that opened up in our hometown. And so he took me and uh, they had this big uh, flying boat as the centerpiece. It was a four engined uh, Sandringham flying boat. And so, of course, I wanted to get up into the cockpit and they were running tours that day. And so uh, my dad and I went up into the up into this Sandringham cockpit and I sat in the pilot's seat and uh, and the person giving the tour was a uh, a kid about about the same age as me. And he was in this uniform and it, it started to intrigue me. You know, how, how does this kid know about, you know, has, has, how does this kid have this knowledge um, about this airplane? Uh, so the uniform was the Air Training Corps, which was the, the junior Royal Air Force. And it just so happened that they had an Air Training Corps squadron attached to this museum. And as we uh, then started to walk around the museum, a door to the squadron was left open. And so I peered in. And what I peered into was the, the simulator room. And they had a whole bunch of simulators. They had two of the old link trainers, the, you know, the big, uh, uh, oh, the, 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 the old wartime uh, movable simulators in there. They had a, a, a big uh, Comet, de Havilland Comet simulator. Um, and I just, just peered into this and saw a whole bunch of these uh, air cadets in uniform flying these simulators and that was it uh from that point i want to join the air training corps um and this this is now where i can learn all about aviation and of course what that did also um it led to an air experience flight so that led to my first flight where i actually got to fly uh the the air training corps would would run air experience flights using old uh RAF trainers, um, de Havilland chipmunks. And, uh, and so I signed up for this and went off one morning to Bournemouth airport in the South of England, uh, and almost threw up my breakfast, um, <laughs> with, because I just didn't know what to expect. Um, I had, I'd filled my brain with so much, uh, knowledge. And I obviously was developing this passion for aviation. But now came the moment where it, I was thinking, well, if I if I go up and I don't like this, then what? You know, there's there's nothing after that. Um, and so I I kind of I was so nervous about going up, but not not nervous of, but of the fact that I might I might not like it um, because I had I'd become so um, passionate about aviation. But as it turned out, uh, I I went up and absolutely loved it um, and realized that this was something I could do. Uh, and so it, being a, you know, a, a broke kid from a broke family, this was the obvious ideal way for me to go fly for a, for a living, which is to join the RAF. Uh, unfortunately, my eyesight wasn't good enough. <laughs> so, uh, so the RAF said, uh, uh, sorry. Yeah, um, thanks, but no thanks. No, we no appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I, you know, as much as I was trying to convince them that, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm England's next best, uh, next best fighter pilot. And they're like, no, 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 sorry. You're, no, no good. Sorry. Go away. Uh, <laughs> so I, you know, and then I was stuck in this limbo of, uh, well, well, what do I do now? I can't afford to fly. Um, the RAF won't allow me to fly. 
uh, I, I have to do something. And I, I was really, I, I, I was looking for some direction and I, I just, uh, I, I did bump into a few people, um, that gave me some advice, some good, some bad. I followed most of it. Um, and, uh, the first thing I tried to do at the time, uh, British Airways were, were running a cadet scheme. Uh, where they would take you from zero hours and they would train you and you would join British Airways. And for that, uh, you needed, um, these qualifications don't exist anymore, but back then it was five uh, O-level um, exam results and two A-level exam results. Uh, the O-level would be a, the high school, over here it would be high school, college, I suppose, and then the two A-levels would be college, university level. Um and so from that point on, uh, I was a very lazy student at school because it didn't seem that uh, schoolwork was, it seemed like a waste of time, um, absolute waste of time to me. But You're not the I only one that perfect. feels that way. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and, but I, I thought, well, now I've got a purpose. Now I, I, I have a goal. I have to get these five O levels and these two A levels um, to, to be able to, to apply to this, uh, cadet program and go and fly for British Airways. Uh, and so I, I, I did pretty well at school. I, there were some subjects and, and this is what happened. My brain, my brain decided which subjects, uh, would help me in my future career and which ones wouldn't. And if you look at my school report, the, the classes that I did well in are things that are related to aviation you know, your sciences and your math and, and those kind of things. Um, English literature, no, uh, absolutely appalling, you know, because it didn't seem, it seemed pointless. Um, uh, it's religious education, a, a, a terrible, absolutely awful. Um, and so I had this very mixed bag of, of results, but I, I did leave school with um, just about, I wasn't, I wasn't a prize student, but just about the uh, the right number of O levels to then move me on to uh, college to get these two A levels, and it, again, it was one of those things where I just had to pick two subjects, and the subjects were just dull and boring, and didn't seem to relate in any way, shape, or form to to flying aeroplanes. And, um, so I was kind of losing the plot a little bit. Um, and then, uh, uh, my dad, um, was a, was a, uh, car mechanic, uh, but he also on the side, he was, a, a, quite a talented photographer and he was, he was photographing, uh, for an advertising campaign, at a, a kitchen showroom. And the owner of this kitchen showroom was a former pilot. I know that because in his office, he had a, a photo of him in his uniform next to an airplane. And, uh, and so, of course, I started to talk to him. Now, his advice um, was, yeah, forget about the college thing. Um, you're, you know, British Airways only take a, a very small number of people. And so if you, if you now spend the next two years trying to get these, these grades, you're only just you're, you're basically giving yourself a ticket to apply to something that you statistically have a very low chance of getting into. Why not go get a job and uh, pay to get your private license and then approach the airlines already with some experience? That was his advice. Now, I'm not saying that's the best advice ever, but, uh, but I took it. 
Um, and so I, I quit college and I went and got a job. Um, and uh, I first started out in a finance company. And uh, I, as a uh, personal loans officer, which was quite ironic because being broke <laughs> and terrible with money. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was, that was the first job. <laughs> Um, and then I got into uh, uh, doing some other credit-related things. Um, I kind of fell into finance and credit management and uh, ended up working for a convenience store company uh, as a credit manager. Um, and this was great because at the time, I was starting to earn a little bit of money and I was able to pay for some flying. The flying costs in the UK at that time were were as they still are, absolutely ridiculous and, and pretty much out of, you know, out of reach for me. But everything I earned, uh, I put into, uh, into flying, um, just to do an hour here and an hour there. Um, and eventually I, you know, I, I, I went solo. Um, I, got, I did my 18 hours and I got, I went solo and, uh, then eventually I got my private, um, and uh, that was 10 years after I took my first flight. And, <laughs> and, uh, but I kind of found myself in this position of uh, I was actually getting more involved with, the, with, the, uh, with the, the regular job. And I didn't seem to be doing too much flying. And other people that I knew were kind of getting on with the airlines and, and their careers were starting to move. And there was a big wake up for me uh, where I just thought, you know, I'm, I, I'm doing as much as I can. I, I work, I earn, and I'm paying for as much flying as I possibly can. But I still got such a long way to go, and I'm just wasting time here. Um, and uh, it was right about that time that my, uh, my aunt, uh, uh, who I was very close to, uh, she she had for her entire life. She never married. Uh, she was always single. She, for in, her entire life, she saved and saved and saved uh, for one thing that she was going to do in her life, which was a uh, an around the world cruise when she retired. And so that's what she spent her life saving for. And uh, so, uh, just a few weeks before she was due to retire. Um, you know, I went to see her and, and she said, well, uh, I'm not going to be taken by around the world trip. I, I have cancer. Uh, and they said, I'm, I'm, I'm not able to travel and I, I may not be around to do it. Um, which was, you know, a big shock at the time. Uh, and the, the advice she gave me then was, don't you dare do what I did. You live your life now. Don't, don't, don't fall into the same trap. Don't wait, just get on with it. And it was a real uh, wake up, kick up the bum for me. Um, and at the same time, of course, I already had these thoughts of, you know, the progress here is just so slow um, and I need to be getting on with this. Um, and so right about this time, and this is definitely not advice that I should give to anybody, but right about this time, I was getting uh, just a... a, a a crap load of, of credit card applications through the door. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, the finance companies realized I was in that, uh, in that demographic of somebody that was earning some money and had a pretty decent credit 
record because I didn't really spend anything or um, they wanted to ever spend your money, huh? Right. Yeah. And so I I signed up for credit cards like crazy, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I uh, yeah I just signed up for so many credit cards and just thought, screw it. I'm just I'm just going to get on with it. Uh, I'll I'll pay these back when I'm a when I'm an airline pilot. Um, I, I you know this is my this is the way I'm going to accelerate my my uh, my flying career. I basically flew as much as I could, um, and at the time, uh, the exchange rate between the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, uh, the pound and the dollar it pretty much uh, worked in my favor that. One hour of flying in the UK was almost equivalent to two hours in the US, and I thought, well, okay, this is pretty obvious. Um, you know, I need to, I need to, I need to go and go over to the US and, and build some hours. And so the the internet was pretty new uh, during those days, and and uh, I <laughs> I couldn't afford to make a phone call to the to the US, so. I, I went to the library and uh, went onto a computer and, and searched this new internet thing. And, uh, and I found uh, a website for a, a company that still exists, uh, San Diego Flight Training International, sdfti.com. I still remember it. And <laughs> Was it the first and, one that popped up or did you specifically search San Diego? No, it, it, was, it was one of the first that, that popped up that, as soon as I looked at the website, it seemed to be very easy to read, and uh, it, it, it very quickly answered a lot of questions that I had. Uh, of well, can I do this? Um, you know, I'm a I'm a UK citizen. I can I come over? Can I can I do this? Um, and it, it answered those questions. And it seemed, you know, there wasn't a lot of small print. Uh, it, it seemed it seemed pretty easy to read. Um, and so, and there was a way to contact them. So I, I contacted them and I said, look, I, I would like to come over for maybe three or four weeks and just max out as much as I can. Um, so I want to fly multi-engine. I want to fly night. I want to, I want to get as much bang for my buck as I can. And, uh, at that time I already had, um, a, uh, a, Pri- uh, pr- let's see, I had a private multi-engine instrument in the UK. Um, and uh, so they suggested, well, why don't we just do this as, as Part 61? I- instead of flying around in circles, why don't we just aim for a commercial multi-instrument uh, conversion? Uh, and I thought, well, that sounds great. Let's do that. Uh, and so... Off I dropped to uh, San Diego, and uh, uh, yeah, and three and a half weeks later, I have a commercial multi instrument. That's awesome. <laughs> which was was nuts. Before um, you came over, was this a um, in your mindset? Was this I'm going to temporarily come to the United States, get all my time, and then come back to the UK to go fly for British Airways, to go fly for whatever the airline was that piqued your interest, or did you think, hey, I might be in the US for the rest of my life? Oh no! I I had there was absolutely no way I could be in the U.S. the the the, the U.S. was purely to build hours. This was this was a, a, a you know a grand plan and a great scheme to get hours. Um, 
And so I would be coming back to the UK far more experienced with a, to be fair, with a commercial multi-instrument that I threw in the drawer. Uh, I am not ever expecting to, to use it ever again. How, how, how could I? Um, and so this was purely just to, to, to build ours um, at a much cheaper rate uh, than, um, than in the UK. And it was just their suggestion of, you know, well, uh, let's make it fun. Let's, let's, we may not be able to do it, but let's go down the road of, uh, of a commercial multi-instrument. And uh, yeah, it, it was, it was so much fun. I just, I just got on with it. I had a great instructor. The examiner was a really, really cool guy. And yeah, so at the end of the time there, I, I had this, this commercial multi-instrument um, with nothing to, I didn't have, I couldn't, couldn't use it. Uh, so I just threw it in a drawer. Um, but that would become quite useful later. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask a question before we kind of keep going on down the yeah. path of, uh, of where, what was next, but uh, there's a lot of people that either get into aviation later, or maybe they need to work to get their hours, or maybe they just always had this goal. But like you, your job kind of consumed you. Your job kind of made your path to becoming a pilot seem not as realistic anymore, or all your friends are already getting hired at air, as airline pilots, and you just felt like you're falling behind just because you had to work and you had to make the money to pay, and it just wasn't happening like you wanted it to happen. What it came to a point where it's like fight or flight. You either had to choose one or the other. Do you think, or I guess a better question is, what would you recommend to someone in that same situation if they should either go all in or still kind of piece it piece by piece? I know you said you don't recommend taking out a bunch of credit cards and, and going crazy and spending those, but like, what do you recommend to the people that are similar in your shoes? Because there's a lot of people like that. You know, I, I would say um, sit in a room on your own, take a step back from your life and just 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 figure out just how much you have this passion for this, for flying. If you, if your passion for flying, if it's consuming everything in your brain, um, then you might as well get on with it because, uh, you only, you only have one shot at this life. So, uh, time is passing by and I would say do anything you possibly can to, to move on and, and get on with it. Um, if, if you have a vague interest in flying, then do everything you can to go get your private and enjoy flying. Uh, but if you really want to go and make this a career, uh, gauge your own passion, uh, because it's going to be a hard road, uh, but gauge your own passion. And, uh, if it's, if it's up there, if this is really what you want to do, uh, go for it. Um, time is passing by. Yeah, that's what I would, that's what I would recommend. But I wouldn't say go get a bunch of credit cards. I would, I, I would, I would research some other options, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, either way, it's expensive. You got to figure it out, and uh, mm -hmm. it's still cheaper in the United States than in the UK to go flying. So if you live in for over in a different country, come on over. We uh, there's a lot of companies that specifically do that. Whether it's Florida, California, they kind of focus on foreign students and and help you convert your license or your ratings, or they help you get your hours. Yeah, I mean, there's so many now. In fact, where where you know where I I still fly a little GA and uh, on the airfield in uh, Thermal, California, there's a a place there. It's, it's some Belgian guys that run a really really nice um, uh, flight school for for Europeans specifically. Uh, there's another one in Tracy, California that uh, you know they encourage people to come over and do this, and they make it easy and fun. You know, they, uh, these European guys get to come over and they're flying to Vegas and they're flying to the Grand Canyon and 
they're doing all of these, you know, really cool things. Uh, and all the time they're building, building logbook hours. Um, and, and of course, San Diego flight training is still in business. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good thing to do. I love how you said fun because flight training so many times can just turn into kind of monotonous and it's just go out and do stalls, do steep turns, and you can kind of lose the fun of it. And I feel like 141 is more designed, obviously, to get you done as fast as possible to follow this track. There's not as much room to kind of deviate from the plan. We're 61. Go build your time however you can. Go do stalls for a little bit and then go fly around. Go do circles. You literally can kind of pave your own path to get your ratings. Uh, and I just think it's very important to always keep the fun in aviation because later in your career, and when you're, when you're training and you learn that pilot, being a pilot is fun will help you out when you are actually flying a 737 or an Airbus, when you're doing the same thing over and over again, and, and you kind of lose that fun a little bit for a little There's always that one moment where it kind of feels like a job, but then you can remember that, hey, this is still fun. I get to fly. I get to do this. Well, there's a lot of people who just look at it and they're like, man, this is bull crap. Like we got to do, the company's making us do this. The company's making us do that. It's, but it's like, always keep that fun in aviation. It, it'll get you through so many of the hard times and it'll keep you loving your job. Absolutely. And, and I think that if you find, you know, again, from what we were saying before, if you find yourself um, uh, very quickly, if you find yourself thinking that this, that the, your flying training in the early stages is a, is a chore um, and is, is just too much and it's not enjoyable and you're not having fun, uh, then you might want to, you might want to just get out um, because, you know, you're, you're going to have to, to keep the uh, a good attitude um, if you're going to head into a career because there are going to be so many ups and downs uh, that if you spot the, the early signs of, um, of uh, frustration um, uh, that's leading to just not enjoying the process, uh, then something has to change. Either, either you know, um, I would have to change my attitude or I'd have to change the flight score. I'd have to change something to make sure that I was, you know, this is a lot of money <laughs> that you put into this. At least you got to you got to enjoy it. Um, you know, not not every single lesson. I mean, there, of course, there are frustrations that I struggle with with several things. Uh, but um, uh, but but then, if you're struggling with something, there's a goal to achieve something. You know, uh, to get it right, and that should give you pleasure. That should be, you know, another fun thing to 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 do. So, uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Another kind of interesting question. What did you think of the differences in culture at the time between the aviation community in the UK and the aviation community in the United States? Was there a kind of a, a really glaring difference between the two or could you kind of consider if someone, if you woke up the next day in San Diego, you kind of felt the same way that they felt about aviation? Oh, they, I, they couldn't be more different in my mind. Uh, the, the, uh, in the UK, uh, it, it was, um, we, I didn't know any different until I came to the U S and realized just how free the U S airspace system was. Um, as a good, as an example, uh, one of the first flights I took with, uh, uh, in San Diego was a night flight, a night instrument flight to Phoenix. Uh, I think it was Williams, Williams gate, gate, gate port or something like that. Um, and I was in the Duchess and, we're flying along and, and the, my instructor was just trying to gauge, you know, where I was. And, uh, so he said, okay, go shoot an ILS approach. Okay, great. Shoot the ILS approach. And, uh, we get to the minimums and I look up and there's nothing there. It's just black. So I went around 
And he said, why did you go around? I said, because I didn't, I didn't see the runway. And he said, well, you've got to turn the lights on. <laughs> and that is the first time I've ever realized that I had to turn the lights on. Because in the UK, you have to pay somebody to turn the lights on. There has to be someone at the airport who's going to charge you for using the lights. Um, and, <laughs> you know, you just, you just couldn't turn up um, at an airport without speaking to anyone, without, without alerting anyone. Uh, and then to get to that airport, you would have to squeeze your way around and under and over different pieces of airspace. Um, and of course, every approach that you shoot in the UK, you have to pay for. Uh, the first thing you do before you go an instrument fly is you call the, the control tower of, uh, of the place that you want to go and practice instrument approaches, and you give them a credit card number. You know, to come over here and number one, just walk out to an aeroplane, uh, turn on the runway lights, taxi out, get it into the air and think, right, where should we go? That's so alien uh, compared to the UK. Uh, and it was really refreshing, really refreshing. Uh, and so... That it, the, the, the two the differences were, were staggering. And of course, the other thing is, is uh, in San Diego, the, 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 the new thing for me was flying uh, near a mountain and not a mountain as in the UK version of a mountain, which is 3,000 feet high. Um, you know, this was a mountain that was 10,000 feet high and, you know, a, a very big difference. Um, it, it just blew me away. I, I, it, was, it was just such an amazing experience. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, it really was. Yeah. But unfortunately the UK, I think is still in the same place. Uh, it's, it is very, very restrictive. It's very hard to get, uh, instrument approaches or instrument approach practice. Um, and, uh, if you, if you fly IFR, uh, which of course the UK is, is a, is a great place for IFR flying, you have to pay for it and it's a pay per mile. And so the cost becomes so huge uh, that it, it prices out most people, uh, you know, unless you, you can afford your own airplane or you can, uh, you know, you have some other source of, of, of income. Uh, there, it, it's, it's closed off to, to so many people that could have had a, a you know, a, a, a career in aviation. Uh, which is such a shame. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. And it just, one, it makes you feel, or it makes you realize how lucky that you are, or not you, but everyone living in the United States has the opportunity to go fly. And like you said, just kind of just go do it. It's it's not really out there in other countries. And I mean, there might be some country that's similar, but I am assuming, I off the top of my head, I can't really think of one. But it also is kind of scary because who knows what the GA world could turn into. And they're, they make more restrictions every single year, every, every other couple of years. And we hope that they keep the freedom alive. And uh, it's just something that we can't take for granted because you don't know how long it's going to be here and the way it is. So uh, hope for the best, right? Yeah, I, well, I've been seeing that system. Uh, you know, that's why I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'll wave the flag for AOPA and... Uh, uh, for EAA and all of these organizations that, that really try and, you know, try and keep an eye on these regulations um, and, and so that it doesn't go that way. Because the freedom that, that you know, we now get to enjoy um, in aviation in the, U, in the uh, U.S., um, it's, it, you cannot compare it. Uh, it's, it's 
it's how it should be to be fair um and uh, but the mindset is different you know a, a lot of a lot of towns uh in the US of course have have their own airport um to try and encourage people to come into the town and spend their money whereas in the UK um and other places it seems to be more of inconvenience and a noise problem uh, that you know we don't want those noisy airplanes coming into our town so close the airport and it's just a different way of thinking uh and a little bit short-sighted i have to say but uh there yeah, you go <laughs> absolutely let's take a break from today's episode to hear from our sponsor raa more than 30 years ago the pilot founders of raa saw the need to provide highly specialized financial services to their colleagues in the airline community you see they understood the unique needs desires and challenges that come with a life spent flying the line and with the goal of positively impacting the lives of their colleagues, RAA was launched. Today, with a team of experienced airline specialized financial planners, investment professionals, and specialists in tax, estate planning, and insurance, RAA is uniquely positioned to serve pilots while safeguarding against the factors that can affect their financial life and security. And they can help you too. Because whether you're just entering the airline industry or nearing your final flight, the team at RAA is there to support your journey from takeoff to touchdown. Learn more about how RAA serves the pilot community today at raa.com backslash pilot to pilot. That's pilot to pilot. And now back to today's episode. So now back to your story a little bit. You have that commercial ticket. You're throwing it in a drawer. Mm. What's your mindset? Mm. Are you just like, all right, cool. I'm just going to stay here, keep building hours until, um, I don't know if you have a visa or whatever it is expires and I'm forced to go back. Or were you kind of figuring out a way like, hey, I kind of like it here. Let me see what I can do. Well, I, I just wanted to keep flying. Um, and so, uh, I just, I tried tried my best to try, try and just keep on building hours in the UK. Uh, as an example, uh, I, at the little airport that I used to go to old Sarah Merrifield in Salisbury, I noticed that there were a bunch of private airplanes, uh, Cessnas and Pipers, uh, that just were, they were hardly ever flown. And I had I had, I already knew that if you didn't fly these airplanes, you know, the batteries would, would eventually go flat. Um, the, you know, if you didn't get the oil around the engines, it was bad for the engines and this sort of thing. So I went out and found some of these owners and said, look, here's the deal. You're, if you don't use your airplane, uh, it's, it's bad. You know, you have to get the engine up to temperature. You have to charge the battery. Here's what I'm going to do for you. Once a month, I'm going to take your airplane and I'm going to fly it for 45 minutes. I'm going to get everything up to temperature. I'm going to check everything for you. I'm going to tell you if there's anything that needs to be done. I'm going to bring it back in. I'm going to cycle the prop. I'm going to do everything that needs to be done, put it back, cover it up, tie it down. And you can have the peace of mind that, you know, your, your airplane is in, is in good condition, ready for the next time you want to use it. And, uh, I had probably five or six airplanes on the airfield uh, that I would do that. And that was just another way of, okay, how can I build hours without actually paying for them? <laughs> and that, so that's, that was one way to do it. Um, you know, so I was doing this sort of thing and I, I bumped into um, uh, a, a friend uh, who worked for an Irish carrier um, at the time. He was a captain for an Irish carrier. And uh I didn't realize it, but I, I, it became obvious that he was planning a route for me to join that airline. Uh, and so 
you know, he said, well, I, here, here's what I need you to do. And uh, as it turned out, he was a management pilot. And eventually came the day where he said, okay, head on over to Ireland. Um, these, this was in the days before the, the European harmonization of, uh, of, of, uh, of aviation uh, licenses and, and regulations. So, you know, he said, well, this is an Irish carrier. So over you go to uh, Dublin and I need you to get your Irish uh, commercial uh, conversion. And uh, so I, I went, went and started the conversion at uh, Western Airport in, uh, in Dublin and then went along to the Irish Aviation Authority and uh, to go and apply for a Irish first class medical. Uh, and now this is where the problem started, uh, because uh, a few, maybe three years before that, um, I, I'd realized that my, my, my eyes were deteriorating. And it was because I was wearing these, uh, these extended wear contact lenses. Uh, but because I was broke, um, I was supposed to be throwing these, these contact lenses away and buying new packets of contact lenses, but I couldn't really afford to do that. So I was reusing them. And, uh, and I was, I was obviously, my eyesight was deteriorating. And so I, I, I had a good friend who was an eye surgeon and he said, look, here's the problem. Oxygen is not getting to your eyeball by doing it, but you know, by doing what you're doing uh, and your eyesight is, is going to suffer. Um, why don't you consider doing this uh, LASIK surgery? I thought, oh, okay. Uh, can I afford to do that? Um, at the time, LASIK surgery was brand new in the UK. And I found a place that was offering a buy one, get one free. Uh, so, you know, you, you buy, the, buy the left eye and they'll give you the right eye for free. Uh, just to, to, to generate some business. And so, you know, of course, most people would think, no, I'm not going to go to the place that gives you a buy one, get one free laser surgery, but I couldn't afford anything else. And I, I listened to Andy, my, my friend, and he said, you really need to do something about this because either you need to, you need to be buying these contact lenses, um, regularly every month, which they were very expensive, or you just stop it now and you fix your eyes and you're good to go. And so I went and got this laser surgery. So now fast forward back to uh, heading into the Irish Aviation Authority and uh, uh, the first uh, area of European harmonization for JAA, the first area that was, that was uh, uh, um, put out to all of the aviation authorities was the medical side. So the first thing they tried to do was to harmonize the medical rules and regulations. And unfortunately, uh, these new European rules did not allow laser surgery as a, as a correction for eyesight. The FAA did, uh, but the, the new rules under JAA did not allow it. And so uh, at the end of the day, um, having had this ludicrous medical, which I thought was more akin to an astronaut, not an airline pilot, uh, but uh, they said, well, I'm sorry, but we can't issue your medical because you had laser surgery. And I said, well, that seems a bit silly. You, do, do I meet the regular, you know, do I meet the standards? Can I, I think I can, I've got the whole eye chart down there. And they said, oh yeah, you meet the standards. But the way that you meet the standards is not acceptable to us. 
And I thought, wow, this makes no sense whatsoever. And I said, so let me get this straight. If I, if I was still wearing contact lenses, you would be okay with that? And they said, yes. I said, okay, that doesn't seem right. That, that, it just seems weird. And the, I went to see the head of the Irish Aviation Medical Association, uh, uh, Medical Division, sorry, who was a really, really nice guy. And he said, look, I think this is dumb. You know this is dumb. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, we have these, these, this, this new, these new regulations, these JAA regulations, and the regulations are written just on a few pages. It's very black and white. Uh, the, pr the previous regulations that I was able to use, the Irish national regulations, uh, is, a, is a book full of words. I can read into that what I need to read into it to make a good decision. I just can't issue you a medical um, based on these new regulations, but I want to help you to fight it. And I thought, great. Okay, so I've got somebody on my side. Uh, but in the meantime, I have to I have to make money. I, I, I don't have a job. And, you know, I was thinking that I was heading off to an airline. I don't, I'd resigned from my, from my uh, staff theft job. And so I thought, well, I've got to make some money. What am I going to do? Uh, and I sat, I can, it's so vivid. I sat on the, on the steps um, of a building next to the River Liffey in Dublin. And I was kind of at my lowest low. I, I just thought, you know, I, my airline career is gone. You know, the barriers have been put up. Even though people want to to try and help, I've got nothing. I've you know, I've got no job. I've got no possible future. And for some reason, at that point, uh, the story of my childhood hero, um, Douglas Bader, came into my head. And Douglas was a uh, a World War II fighter pilot um that he lost his legs um he was he basically joined the royal air force before the war and uh he was he he was you know an aerobatic display pilot for the royal air force and he did some low aerobatics and crashed and lost his legs and so he was initially confined to an office job um and then when the war started he he basically said well look i'm a trained pilot you need pilots. I'm ready to go. And of course, they said, "Well, there's nothing in the regulations that say that somebody with with artificial legs can fly an airplane." And he set off on a course to try and change that, um, and did, and became a fighter ace, and, and and was actually shot down and captured and escaped without legs, uh, which is a bit embarrassing, I guess. Um, uh, you know, the guy became a, a, a hero to me, and I thought. Here's a guy that was in a similar position with medical regulations, but he had no legs. I've just got this, you know, I've, I've got this eyesight thing, but he had no legs and he ended up, he ended up getting through. And it was a, another kick up the bum that, that just made me, you know, want to just get on with it. Um, and that's when I remembered I have my FAA commercial certificate. What I need to do is to try and find N-registered airplanes in Europe and see if I can do anything uh, for who, wherever those airplanes are, whatever they need, uh, to try and keep flying. And so I headed out to try and find N-registered airplanes. Um, that led me to uh, Cessna, 
um, who were selling their airplanes throughout Europe uh, when Cessna would in the UK would buy an airplane, they would bring it over from the US, it would be enregistered until it was sold. And once it was sold, it would be flown to the particular country and then re-registered in that country. But in the meantime, it stayed on the end register. And the sales guy there said, we need a demo pilot. Um, great. I'm your man. Uh, I have a, a, an FAA commercial. Um, and so I can, I can demonstrate these. And he said, great. And you can deliver them to, the, to these countries when we sell them. Great. Uh, so I started to do that um, just to make a little bit of money and keep going. Uh, and that guy, the sales guy, Dustin, became the new sales manager of a brand new company called Cirrus. Uh, so I did the same thing for Cirrus. So I was actually the demo pilot for Cessna and Cirrus in the UK at the same time. And there, there were some days when I would, I would take a Cessna to an airfield to demonstrate it to a bunch of people. And the next day I would go with a Cirrus. And, you know, they're like, well, well, hang on a second. Yesterday you were trying to sell us a Cessna. Today you're trying to sell us a Cirrus. Like, uh, so, uh, uh, but that led to, um, uh, to these longer flights, uh, delivering these airplanes throughout Europe uh, for the dealers. And then one day somebody said, could you, could you take an airplane o- over to the US? And I said, sure, because I just, that was my job. I, you know, I was just, a- any job that I could make a little bit of money from, I just said yes and did it. Uh, and so uh, I flew across the Atlantic and took, uh, took these uh, couple of Aztecs uh, to Florida. Um, had virtually no idea what I was doing. Um, I did do a, quite a lot of research, but I, I just went and did it. And uh, I was, now I know with hindsight, I was very lucky. Um, the weather windows were good um, and I didn't have any issues, mechanical issues. Uh, but then somebody said, oh, hey, uh, Cirrus need some of their airplanes brought to the UK. Actually, sorry, no, to, the, to Holland, to the uh, dealership in Holland. Um, and because I'd, I'd, I'd already flown a bunch in the Cirruses, uh, I said, yeah, sure. Um, so I turned up in Duluth and uh, jumped in a Cirrus and took it to Holland. And then another one, and then another one. And then another one. So you got the ferry pretty much brand new airplanes back and forth. Exactly. That's amazing. Most ferry pilots, I feel like, are are ferrying like planes that they're not sure are going to start. Don't know if they're going to make it all the way over, but (laughs) you got nice brand new airplanes. That's awesome. That's the way to do it. I did. And the nice thing was, is that from Duluth to, uh, to Goose Bay is, you know, it's a good 10 or 11 hour flight. And in that time, you get to see whether there are any issues with this airplane before you set out across the Atlantic. Uh, so you you actually get that. Now, to be fair, at the same time, I was also taking any other job that I could. And so, you know, as an example, I ferried this uh, old Yak-18 from uh, Lithuania to the UK. And that was a different story. That was that was horrendous. Uh, it, but, um, you know, it, it was it was a, just a, a, a mechanical nightmare. Um, and uh, and I couldn't read any of the um, oh I, I, it was put together at an industrial complex uh, it wasn't even put together at an airport and so when I 
turned up to pick up this uh, Yak-18. I said, well, where's the runway? And they said, well, there is no runway. You've got to use the road. Like, what? <laughs> what do you mean I've got to use the road? They said, okay, that's all right. We'll, we'll close off the road for you and you can take off. Yeah, we do this all the time. You'll be fine. Like, no worries. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> and I got in this thing. I thought, wow, I may have, I may have bitten off more than I can chew here. And I got into this, uh, into this yak and everything was in Russian. I don't speak Russian. And so uh, this other guy said, uh, hey, I can, I can be your translator if you can take me along. It sounds like a fun trip. I, sure. I said, yeah, sure. Come on over. Uh, so he became my translator. He sat in the right seat, and uh, we we took off on the road, and we we uh, we got as far as Holland, and that was the first time that somebody had asked for our passports, and uh, so I gave them my passport, and of course the guy that had come from Russia didn't have a passport, and, <laughs> and uh, he yeah he they they kind of let him go, but when we arrived in the UK, he he kind of ran out into the forest and. Uh, with the immigration people behind them. You probably but, brought in like a Russian spy, like a number one Russian exactly. spy to the UK. Like, yeah, well, yeah. I'll get this poor soul to bring him in there. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. He's a nice guy though. Yeah, he's nice. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> Russian spies are great. Yeah, great guy. <laughs> um, it's funny because I feel like this whole story kind of all comes back to one thing and that was you showing up at an airport, you being at the airport, kind of making a name for yeah. yourself. There, there's so many other stories of people like to, it seems like you just happen to find good luck, good luck, good luck, but it really was you going out and putting in the hard work, just showing up and being at the airport. And then people knew you, people were recommending you to other people. So it's one of those things of go to the airport as much as you can. You never know when you're going to meet that person that's going to give you the ferry job. That's going to say, yeah, go fly my plane for 45 minutes every month. You know, you never know, but just show up, just be there and people will look out for you. And in this community specifically, they'll root for you and they will try to find stuff for you. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's, I, I, I worked at, at the airport, um, just for, you know, almost no wages, but it didn't really matter to me. I, I fueled airplanes. I cut the grass. I, you know, I, did all of those things um, purely so that I could tell my silly stories to people because eventually somebody's gonna gonna have a friend or somebody that needs something done and they'll say, oh, hang on a minute, I know there's a guy, there's that guy Steve at the airport. He's done this, he's done that. Oh, I'll go see him now. And it, you know that that without any question that that's you you have to be present, you have to be there. Uh, people have to see you. It has to exist. And you know what? What's that's the old quote, right? It build it and they'll come. Well, you can't. You, you've got to exist. You've got to be there for people to come to you. Uh, and so uh, that that's that's for sure. I totally agree with that. Yeah. yeah. And you wrote a book for, for for ferry pilots, right? Or not for ferry pilots, but about your experience being a ferry pilot, right? Yeah, I did. it wasn't intended to be a book. Um, my my dad was um, this. You know, later on, once I got into the airlines, I uh, I was flying along and I was telling some of my silly ferrying stories. Um, and I have about ten good stories um, because mostly ferry flying is quite boring. Uh, it's you know very long legs um, with with moments of craziness or excitement. And you can kind of steal little bits of those and make them into one one good little story. And I had about 10 of those. And I would tell these stories to, to some of the people that I was flying with. And uh, 
at the time, my dad was diagnosed um, with uh, uh, with a, a, a sort of an Alzheimer's string. It was called Louis 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 body disease, but um, kind of an Alzheimer's thing. And the, uh, I was flying with a a guy that I used to fly with a lot, and he said, um, "You better write some of this stuff down, you know, before you get Alzheimer's." You know, I'm like, "Wow, that's a that's a good point." And then, and then I thought, "Wow, wouldn't it be cool if I wrote these down and then I ended up in the same place as my dad? Where if I reread some of these silly stories, and what would I think of me? What what would I think of this guy? Would I think he was a lunatic? Would I think?" You know, he, he, you know, wow, that's a, that's really inspirational. Or would it was it? What would I think as a as a person that that had started to forget these stories? And so I wrote, um, I wrote a few things down, um, and tried to try to write a story, and it was okay. It was not great, but it was okay. But there were a couple of lines that I thought, wow, that actually, that's actually quite good. And I kept coming back to it and I kept coming back to it. And over a period of about three years, I, I basically got, um, got these 10 stories written down and I shared them with some people and they really liked them. Uh, but the, the people that were reading them knew me. And so they said, well, uh, these are good. These are good stories. But if, if you were to read this or somebody that didn't know you was to read this, uh, they don't know how did you get into this variant thing, and so the story I just told you, I wrote that um, to get you know why did you because no one sets out to be a ferry pilot. That's you know that's not where you you don't you don't aim for that. I don't think or most people don't. Uh, and so uh, how did you get into it is a story in itself. And so I wrote that piece, and then I I basically had this what what kind of was a book. And I thought, well, if I self-publish this, number one, I, I, I check off my life list of I wrote a book and it's on the shelf. Whether or not anybody ever reads it, is, it doesn't matter. But I wrote a book, so I can check that off of my life list. Uh, but also, the people that are in the people part of the story that may know a small part of it but didn't know the other bits, I can send them a copy of this book and maybe they'll enjoy it. And so I self-published this thing. And of course, as part of self-publishing it, it's automatically put out onto Amazon and Kindle. Um, uh, and what, what actually happened was a, a magazine, an aviation magazine in the UK, a uh, flyer magazine, picked it up and, and wrote a review, uh, and a very, very nice review, uh, and then another magazine picked it up and wrote another review. And all of a sudden, uh, the book was selling to, uh, to all of these people that I didn't know, these strangers. And I kind of, I felt, I felt weird. I, I, you know, it wasn't ever written for other people. Uh, but the comments that I was getting back were really nice. Uh, people seem to enjoy it, um, seem to like reading the stories. And, uh, and so, uh, but then the money started to come in. It wasn't a massive amount of money, but some money was coming in and I just felt bad. I didn't write it to make money. Um, that wasn't the point. Um, and so I thought, well, to make me feel better, what I should do is I should donate this money to the Douglas Barter Foundation because Douglas Barter was a reason that I ended up where I ended up. 
And so, and that makes me, that takes my guilt away. Um, and so I started to donate to the, uh, to the Douglas Bader foundation. Um, and what they do is they, uh, they take kids with limb loss, um, and they teach them to fly, or they at least give them an experience of flying, um, to encourage them, you know, encourage these kids to, to, to understand that, you know, if, okay, if you've lost your arm, let's say, or a leg, you can still fly an airplane. So if you can fly an airplane, you can do anything. You know, um, even though you've lost the, this, this limb, let's say, uh, and I just, I just thought that's, that's it. It's got to go there. Um, and it's, a, a almost $12,000 in now. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. amazing. Congratulations <laughs> to, for selling. That's a lot for a book, man. That's good. It's awesome. It's crazy. Well, that, that's not just the book. That's, uh, uh, there's, there's a lot of other events and things that I've done. I, I just became, it, it was just nice to be able to donate to them because I, I see the work they do. And, uh, it's, you know, it was, it, it was really cool to be able to do that. But then of course, from the, from the ferrying, I, I ended up, uh, the ferrying career lasted, um, about four years. Um, and one of the last ferry flights I did was, uh, uh, three British aerospace ATPs, uh, from the desert in, uh, Kingman, Arizona over to the UK. And the, uh, one of the pilots that I got that I hired to, uh, to fly those flights was at the time, the, uh, fleet manager for Air Wisconsin. And, uh, uh, at the time also I had met my wife who was American. Um, and so we, we were, uh, we were planning to get married and, uh, the ferrying was, it's a very, very dangerous profession. Um, and I kind of got to that point where I would walk up to an airplane and just think, okay, is this one my coffin? You know, and that is not a good way to start a flight. <laughs> so I just thought I, I need to, for the sake of my health and for the sake of my future marriage, I need to do something here. And I, I, I throw away comment to John as we're crossing the Atlantic in one of these uh, British Aerospace ATPs of, uh, you know, ended with his, quit your whining, I'll pay you 20 bucks an hour to fly a CRJ. And okay, I think I can do it. <laughs> that's where I ended up going. I, I closed down my ferrying business and I went to Air Wisconsin as a $20 an hour CRJ first officer. Were you making less money doing that than you were the, with ferries? Way less. <laughs> it was ludicrous amounts less. It was, uh, it was nothing to do with the money. It, it was pure. The money was irrelevant. Honestly, it was, I've got to move to my next, you know, to the next stage. I got to move on from the ferrying. Uh, even though I have a very, had a very successful ferrying business, um, uh, it could end at any moment, um, with me in a box. And so, and unfortunately, a lot of people that I, a lot of colleagues that I came into contact with, that's what happened. You know, they ended up in a box and I thought, well, my, my number is going to be up sooner or later. So, uh, so for the sake of a schedule in a, in a, you know, in a, a, an airline, uh, a, a good airline, um, that's what I want. It wasn't about the money. It was nothing to do with money. Um. And so I joined, uh, joined Air Wisconsin. Yeah, and that's the next logical step to, to fulfill your dream of being an airline pilot or flying bigger metal or kind of continuing your progress. Like everyone kind of gets in the situation where maybe they get their first job or their second job and they're making a decent amount of money. They're making good money, but it's still 
not their end goal, but they're in this position and this mindset of, well, I'm making pretty good money. I can live out this. Like, I can live out this. This is this is something I like to do. I could see myself. The people are nice to me, and and they're hesitant to take that next step. They're hesitant to either take that pay cut. Well, it's not much of a pay cut anymore now because regionals actually pay pretty well. But you still find yourself like maybe you you owe the company you're at more than you think you do. Like you stay longer than you need to. But in reality, you need to get to the next job. You need to keep moving. You need to you need to constantly be going for that end goal, whether it's the five fractional, whether it's a five for the airlines or whatever it is, like constantly move. Don't feel like you owe anyone anything or don't be afraid to make less money to per, to further pursue your end goal and your end dream. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, uh, that, yeah. So the, the regional stuff was, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I really enjoyed my time at Air Wisconsin. Great people, uh, hard flying, you know, uh, Northeast flying, uh, wintertime, summertime, uh, and then upgrade. Uh, and then I, you know, I was offered a position in the training department. So I went to the training department and became a Czech airman. Uh, and then I, you know, I was able to to get that thrill of of helping people that were struggling in the sim. Uh, then I became an APD, and all of this time, I it was that I was back in this. Oh, people are leaving for majors, and people are going to airlines, and I'm not. I'm 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 really enjoying what I'm doing, but I I feel as if I probably should move on. But you know, I I don't know. And I at the time, it was the time of the the US Air America West merger. And I was, I was riding jump seat to work a lot. Um, and I was, I saw how miserable the flight decks were. And I thought, I'm, I do not want to come into this environment. I don't care what they would pay. I don't want to come into an environment like this. Uh, and so I, I avoided the majors for a really long time until, uh, on my doorstep, we were living in the Bay area, Bay area at the time on my doorstep, Virgin America uh, opened up. And that to me was, aha, this is not miserable. This is not dull. This is not boring. This is not routine. This is something new. This is something different. This is something I can, I could have fun with. I could, you know, even if it doesn't last very long, this is going to be fun. And so I walked into an interview, not really expecting to get the, the job, but to you know, I just wanted to see what it was all about. It's, it sounded exciting to me. And I got the job uh, about six months after Virgin started to fly. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that was the next bit. <laughs> it's pretty much like uh, the, the best way you could uh, bring UK to the Bay Area almost. like Because it's like Virgin, UK founded, right? Is it UK founded? Or technically the islands, Richard Branson and everything like that. But UK kind of upbringing and kind of ideology and, and just airline to the Americas. Then it was kind of your way of being flying for a, a carrier in the UK, but in the States. So it's kind of cool that that worked out. It, it's very weird. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up with Virgin products um, and, and they were always in, in the same way as San Diego flight training. Um, they always took, seemed to take away the, the, the small print. They were always upfront about things. You knew what you were going to get. Um, and you, you expected that people were going to be generally happy and the, the focus was on customer service. Um, and so I just thought this, you know, and they did some, they did some things that, 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 um, that more regular, you know, uh, uh, 
businesses wouldn't do. You know, uh, it seemed like they would always do do these uh, crazy events and have fun. Um, and they would always involve the employees. And I just thought, if it's anything like the Virgin that I know from the UK, you know, this is going to be fun. Now, I also had a, a realization that the the airline industry in the US, it probably weren't going to be very happy about this. Because if it became successful, it would be uh, it would be something that would really challenge and take a lot of money away from these established airlines. And so I didn't know if it was going to last. But at the time, I had nowhere else I wanted to go because of the the misery in some of these flight uh, flight decks. And so it, for me, it was pretty obvious that's that's where I want to go just to just to be a part of it. And, uh, and so that's what I did. Um, and that was, that led to, uh, 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 13, 13 years on the Airbus. Uh, and then in 2016, uh, Alaska, Alaska Airlines, uh, bought Virgin America. And so by default now I, I'm an Alaska Airlines pilot and, uh, transitioned to the seven, 737 last year. And, uh, that's now my day job which is kind of cool. Was there any inkling of like, uh, when, when you're at Virgin, did you think there was, was there a moment like, hey, we either need to merge, be bought, or it's going to go under? Was that kind of the feeling for a while? Well, um, here's a funny thing. So I joined Virgin in 2008. And 2008 was, if you remember, was um, the financial crisis. And I thought, well, that's it. Uh, we're done. But we weren't. Um, there were people throwing money at this airline. Because it, it was it was make it seemed to be making a difference. I mean, I saw the passengers. I I spoke to the passengers, and and people really seemed to connect with it, and they really liked it. And we had a really good team of people. Everybody I worked with, most of them are now lifelong friends, and and the passengers could see that that we were all happy and we were together. Um, and so when we when we were able to get through two thousand eight, I thought. You know, really, is there anything that can that can stop this? Um, now we grew at a rapid rate. Uh, we never really made that much money, but we didn't really lose that much either. And the invest investors were always willing to put money in. Um, uh, but then, at you know, at some point, um, just prior to the to the. Uh, uh, to the acquisition from Alaska, at some point there was just too much money available on the table, and uh, and so that's where you know, as an employee, it's, you know, I'm out of this. This is a, this is about people people much higher up than me with, that uh, that have lots of dollar signs in front of them. Yeah, let's see what Steve so, says. Steve, do you want this merger yeah, to go through? Would Would you like this to happen? And unfortunately, I, I also think that's what they. Richard Branson was in a similar position because as a UK citizen, he was not able to be a, uh, a shareholder um, of 50, 51%. So he couldn't make an overall decision either on the sale of the, of the company. Uh, and so, you know, it was, it, it was left to um, American investors um, who could make that 51% decision and it was sold. And, uh, and there you go. Uh, Alaska acquired Virgin American. It's funny um, when you were at Air Wisconsin, you were jump seating to and from work, and you were in a, an environment where there was a merger going on. 
U.S. Airways and uh, America West. And you thought to yourself, I don't want to ever be a part of this situation. And then you go to Virgin. And then here you are facing a merger. Now I'm asking this because what I'm guessing there are differences between the two. My dad was uh, is an American pilot, flew for U.S. Airways, started with Piedmont, and he's seen a bunch of mergers going up to where he is now. Um, but what could you tell any differences between the Alaska and uh, Virgin merger versus U.S. Airways and America West? Now, U.S. Airways America West merger was probably one of the worst mergers in uh, mentality, uh, how it was implemented. Just everything just seemed to go wrong, and no one liked each other, it seemed like. Uh, but I'm guessing it was a little bit different on the, the West Coast side. Yeah, I'm, I have to say, um, the memories of, of that uh, U.S. Air uh, America West merger just came flooding back uh, when we were told in 2016 that we were we were merging, and uh, I, I just thought, oh man, this is going to be horrible. Uh, uh, you know, I I just don't know what to expect. But to be fair, um, uh, let's see, how can I put this? Um, Virgin and Alaska had some similar operational issues um, uh, in terms of uh, the basic things that as pilots we would pay attention to. For example, schedules, um, time off, flexibility with schedules, these kinds of things, they were a little challenging at Virgin. And when we learned the new system at Alaska, it was also a little challenging there. Um, and so we had a little bit of common ground. Uh, we also had a uh, a seniority integration that 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 wasn't too bad um there were there were kind of pissed off people on one side and pissed off people on the other which probably means it was a wrong uh, that they urged the seniority lists and so there was there was no real spark um that 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 drove it down the same road as the America West and U.S. Airways merger, we really just didn't have that. Um, and so, uh, in fact, one of the one of the things that that uh, that I do remember, one of the first times that the two pilot groups got together, um, we had this uh, uh, this this uh, uh, big company meeting over several days. All of the employees came in. And, you know, so that the company could, could out, uh, you know, uh, lay out the, the, the future plans and so you could get to talk to the leadership and things like this. And it was all good. Uh, but in the evening, uh, the, 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 uh, the union had put on, they, they, they'd, uh, they had a couple of hotel rooms and they had some beers and they, they had some snacks and they said to the pilots of both pilot groups, uh, Virgin and Alaska, come in and, uh, have some beers and hang out. And when you take those uniforms off and you have a pair of jeans on and a t-shirt and a beer, you start to talk. And we realize very quickly that we're just pilots. We're, this is nothing to do with us. You know, this is, these are, there are all of the, all of these decisions were made by, they weren't made by pilots. They were made by, by the uppers. Um, you know, the management people, uh, we just turn up. Nobody knew that, uh, that when I joined Virgin, I didn't know that Alaska was was going to be my future employer. When somebody joined Alaska, they didn't know that they were, you know, Alaska were going to buy Virgin. It was just nothing to do with us. Um, we just turn up and do the job. Uh, so there was it was there was never 
there really was very little um, toxic environment. There was nothing like the America West and uh, um, uh, and uh, U.S. Air merger, which was really really nice. Uh, and and you know, Alaska is a good company. I, I like Alaska. I like working for them, and uh, uh, especially recently during this pandemic, um, the one thing that Alaska has is money. And they, they're very conservative and very careful with their money. And they had money in the bank. Um, and that, again, as, as two previously separate pilot groups, kind of brought us together. Um, you know, we were all thrown into the same situation. And uh, the, these things were, were, were figured out for one pilot group. And, uh, you know, the, the, the benefit of, ha- of working for a company that had some money in the bank and a, and a very unified uh, union as well kind of worked for all of us so uh yeah it's it's been a it's been a pretty decent process actually yeah and it's funny um it's a constant theme in your story and a lot of people's stories just like constant adversity and uh getting to the end goal and constantly uh having maybe a goal and taking the side paths along that instead of going straight from a to b you're taking like a point a point one a point two and you're going off to the side to eventually get back to that end goal but it's constant in almost everyone's story it's like take the best opportunity you have at that time to further your career and further your life and further yourself personally uh financially or spiritually or mentally whatever it needs to be to get to that end goal to where you want to go and you never know where it's going to be and when the hard times come there will be hard times some hard times are different than others some people face really true tragedies some people deal with with demons inside themselves and it, you just have to constantly take every day step by step and, and work through it and get through it and it's going to end and it's going to lead to a great career uh in aviation with a couple downturns <laughs> financially whatever it is mergers uh but it, you just got to stick to it and like we said earlier you got to remember the love you have for this industry remember the love you have for aviation and that you truly can't see yourself doing anything else well that i mean it's so true and and actually to be fair you know i i uh, w- working for virgin and for alaska has has gifted me the opportunity to get back into ga and and own an airplane and own a couple of airplanes which is from where I came from is just nuts. In a, in a million years, I never, ever thought I would be able to do that. And so going back to GA flying now has been, it's been so refreshing because uh, it's just reminded me that of the fun flying, of that, that opportunity that we have to, to get into the air with the freedom that we have to fly around and go visit these towns and go visit uh, these, these places um, and, and, and my wife got her private and she got her instruments. So now we're able to fly together and, and enjoy, just enjoy flying. Uh, and so when I come to work, the, the, you know, the, yes, it, you know, you know, and, and I know that the job itself can have moments of well, moments, days of tedium and boredom and, uh, frustration and, and other things. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, like that's when you've got to step back, I think, and just remind yourself just how lucky, you know, I am to be in this position because I know that there's another thousand people that would do this. And those, those are the people that have got to decide on their passion. And hopefully I get to fly with them or when I'm retired, I'll be their passenger. Um, and that, that's, you know, that's how it should be. Yeah, Absolutely. It's uh, it's a great industry and not everyone has the opportunity to get into it, whether it's 
just failure on aviation's part for seeming like it's an old boys club where they don't do a good enough job of kind of promoting it to everyone and being like, hey, literally anyone can do this. It doesn't matter who you are, what you believe, what you yeah. want to do, you can be a pilot. And whether it's just a fault by that, like we are just the lucky ones that are in the situation and it's our duty to, to help other people get into it and, uh, and find this as well. So enjoy what you have because there's so many people that would love, love to be doing what you're doing. And remember when you were a CFI or a ferry pilot where all you wanted to do is go fly these routes that you are now flying. Yeah. I, it's, I, I, I pinch myself so many times. It's, uh, you know, just to sit there every now and again and just look out the window and think, man, I, I in my lifetime, I never thought I'd see San Francisco or Los Angeles or Hawaii. I, I never thought I'd ever visit those places. And now, you know, I'm looking out of a hotel window now at, down at uh, Upper Manhattan. That's nuts. That's absolutely nuts. You know, it, it's, it's now so normal. Um, but, uh, but I don't want to take it for granted. What would nine-year-old um, so, Steve say to current Steve right now? Like, holy crap, how did you get here? I never imagined this. So, like, what would, what would that conversation be like? Oh, well, I'd have, I'd have, I'd be, as a nine-year-old, I would be questioning myself. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's just so impossible. It's, it's not even realistic. It's, it's just, it's a, it's a different world. It's a different planet, uh, from where I came from. Um, but, uh, but I think my nine-year-old self would say, you know, uh, it, obviously you did it. So, um, uh, keep going, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have some rapid fire questions for you. It is uh, just aviation themed questions. And if you listen to almost 200, I'm sure you have some answers. So I'm ready now, for them. Here's, here's a funny thing. So I have listened to almost 200 of these and I play along with this, but every time I change my answers. <laughs> so this is going to be interesting because I don't know what I'm going to say. So they are set in stone after this and you can never change them ever again. It. Yeah. So this, this is your is last it. chance. You ready? Yep. I'm ready. All right. What is your favorite airplane ever made? Supermarine Spitfire. That was quick. I like it. All right. Corporate yep, jet. That won't change. Uh, corporate jet. Always trick up the uh, airline pilots with the corporate jets. <laughs> Falcon 900. Oh, all right. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, what about favorite GA airplane? Uh, De Havilland Chipmunk. All right. What's the ugliest airplane you've ever seen? Okay. This one I do know. Uh, it is a, an airplane I flew once and it's called a Gardan Horizon. GY80. GY80. I'm going to look it up real yeah. quick. Gardan, see this. G, it's G A R D A N. Gardan Horizon. It GY80 is aircraft. awful. And yeah, it flies as well as it looks. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that's funny. All right. It, it truly amazes me how many ugly airplanes there actually are that have been made. There is literally yeah. a million of them. And I yep. just hate on the Piaggio for no real reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although I agree with you. Yeah. That. I really do. Thank you. I appreciate it. All um, right. Here's another one. What's something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? How to iron a shirt. <laughs> Dude, that's no a struggle. Told me that. <laughs> yeah. Or like to mentally prepare yourself to do it the night before so you're not rushing in the morning. Yeah. I always yeah. do it every single time. I'll have like five minutes to iron my shirt and it could look so much better if I just took the time at night to do it. <laughs> it's so true. Every time. Uh, who's someone in the industry you would love to meet most? Could be living or they could have died. Actually, um, that, that one's easy for me. That's Douglas Bader. Um, my, you know, my inspiration, my, my hero. Um, and he, he passed away in the early eighties and I would, man, I would love to sit down and, and chat to him. Um, as a, as a result of, of donating the money 
uh, to the foundation, I've, I've got to become uh, uh, friends with his living relatives. And uh, it's so fascinating to talk to them. Um, uh, but, I, yeah, I would love to sit down and talk to him. I love it. Yeah, that'd be cool. I've never heard that story before. That's, that's crazy. Oh, if you, if you, um, there, there, there's a book and a movie called, uh, Reach for the Sky, uh, by Paul Brickhill. If you ever get, if you ever get the chance, um, yeah, it's an old 1950s movie, but it's absolutely my favorite movie. Have to check uh, it out. Reach for the Sky. Yeah. All right. Next question. What's your overall favorite thing about aviation? The people. 100%. What's your least favorite flight you've ever flown? Hmm. Least favorite. Um, I think it was probably uh, a an a air thrush, an ag plane, um, that uh, I was ferrying from uh, Alabama to Portugal. And uh, uh, that that thing was just so shaky. And, and I just had so many things happen on that flight. And it ended, it never got to Portugal it, um, with me flying anyway. It ended in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland with a freak windstorm that, that damaged the airplane. Uh, it ripped the control lock out and the, uh, the ailerons and elevators were flapping so much that they flapped themselves off of the, it was ludicrous, the winds that were kicking up. And it was completely unforecast. Um, and that, going back out to see that airplane and the damage, um, I cannot even tell you how, how I felt because I, I just felt so bad, deflated, defeated, a failure. Um, I, I really, really, really affected me bad because I, I would had, I had a hundred percent delivery record and I was always really proud of, you know, the, the, the leg before I would, I would ultimately deliver the airplane. Even if it was just a dealer, I would clean the airplane. I would make it look nice. I'd make sure the logbooks were all in the right place. And, you know, I, I had a, I wanted to keep a bit of pride in in the delivery, and that one was just to see this wreck, um, and it was on my watch uh, was just awful. I I hated it. Yeah, that is awful, and it just goes to show the how crazy aviation can be <laughs> and unpredictable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, un, yeah, unprecedented winds when you don't expect it. Not fun. Not a good time. No, definitely not. What's your um, What's your favorite flight you've ever flown? Uh wow, I. Uh, I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say that that was probably a recent flight that I flew, um, because I'm in that stage of my career now where I really am enjoying every flight. Uh, and I got to, to do my line check, uh, to, from Los Angeles to Maui, which is one of my favorite places ever. One of my favorite approaches. And the, uh, the Czech airman was a pre, was an ex blue angel. Uh, he was Blue Angel 2 from the early 90s. And uh, the, the FO was also a, a former military pilot. And uh, that flight was, even though it was a line check, was just awesome. That's pretty cool. You turn a line check into yeah. an awesome flight. It doesn't happen very often. <laughs> really, no, not really. No, no. But what a fascinating guy. Well, both of them. Both of the people in that cockpit. I was so privileged to share the cockpit with them. And, uh, and the flight itself, you know, uh, the flight was good. The approach was really good and a pretty decent landing as well. I'll have there you go. That's so the I best part. Of that. <laughs> <laughs> what's, uh, what's your favorite airport you've ever landed at? I think, uh, the, um, I think DCA. Yeah. 
I like I love the River Bridge you went to DCA. What's your least favorite airport? Newark. <laughs> Would you rather fly <laughs> IFR or VFR? VFR. Uh, you're at the airport and you have about 30 minutes in between your next flight. What food are you going for? If there is one, Chipotle. All right. I will never eat Chipotle ever again in my life. I got sick about it six months ago. I got food poisoning no. and I will never eat it ever again. Ever. Oh, no. Sorry, Chipotle. <laughs> um, uh, it was, what we got? What we got? Would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, or the city? Mountains. Airbus or Boeing? Specifically, oh. you've flown both. <laughs> uh, I got to say, I, I, there are things I love about both and there are things I hate about both. But if we're talking just flying, mm-hmm. it's got to be Boeing. All right. For if it's just work, it's got to be Airbus. <laughs> there we go. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> What's your favorite airline livery? Virgin America. All right. Long trips or short trips? And I mean long. I mean, you're taking uh, the 737 on the longest flight you can possibly do. The longest flight. Or if you're taking the 737 on as many short trips you could possibly do in a day. So you're doing like the shuttle in the Northeast like eight times a day or six times a day. What would you choose? Normally, I would have said long. But I, as part of the transition to the Boeing uh, with Alaska, I got to, to fly the Milk Run uh, in Southeast Alaska, which are really short flights um, through Southeast Alaska, through the mountains and to short runways and quick turns. And that was so cool. That's awesome. So I'm going to say short trips. Yeah. yeah. It's like a little part of fractional aviation up there. Quick turns, yeah. air, air mountains, small airports. Yeah. Yeah. It was it's awesome. fun. It's amazing what these planes are actually capable of when you take them outside of like a 10,000 foot airport or 10,000 foot runway, you know, like what these machines can truly do and how quick they can stop. It's like really crazy when you see it in action. Yeah. It's when I actually, that, that was when I really clicked with the seven, seven thirty seven. It it's because it, it, it was obvious. It's just a really good airplane. It's just a normal, it's just an airplane. Just go fly. It's, it was great. What's the biggest win of your career so far? I think meeting John, who was the uh, the, the fleet manager of, of Air Wisconsin, because that really that's that took me away from the Ferian, which was I would never change it. It was the best education I could ever have uh, of the world and of cultures and of people. But um, but it took me away from something that was potentially going to end badly and put me onto this track that has now led to. Um, you know, a career that I can end uh, doing the sort of things that I'm doing, you know, out to the islands and down to Mexico and out to New York. What's the biggest regret of your career, if you have one? Um, because of where I'm sitting, I really can't say that I, I have one. Um, I needed all of those bad things to happen to open up the doors to the good things. They had to happen. And it's now why, even if there's something bad that happens, I just let it go. I let it happen because I know it's going to lead to something good. So I, I don't think I can really regret anything. That's a good way to look at it. As long as you can learn from all the bad things and you can let them take you to a place that uh, uh, not ruining your life or kind of you constantly thinking about it and you can let it push you to become a better person and strive yeah. for the best opportunity, then it's definitely, a, I consider those wins. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We got a couple more CRJs or ERJs. Let's say you're commuting on a CRJ 200 or a 145. What would you choose? 
I can't believe you're asking me these questions. <laughs> I've listened to this so many times and I keep going backwards and forwards, but I'm saying CRJ. All right. Yeah, the 145 is pretty terrible. Now, if there's any ERJ, if it's a 175, give me that any day of the week. Yeah, That's my, one of my favorite planes to fly on. Yeah, absolutely. Piper or Cessna? What would you choose? Piper. 141 training or 61 training? 61. And your overall... Actually, I'm going to say 61 unless you have a really good instructor for 141. All right. I like that. It's fair, fair. Overall, favorite airline. So this would be, it can't be Virgin America because it's not in existence anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're getting two tickets to fly anywhere in the world or you're flying standby and you're going back home, what are you, what are you trying to go on for business class or whatever it could be? Lufthansa. Lufthansa. I like it. All right. Last question I have for you. There's someone listening to this that's in a very similar situation as you. Maybe they're in South of London or the South of UK. And they just really want to be a pilot. They don't have the money to go, just go do it. Uh, they don't They don't see a route for them or it could be anyone anywhere in the world. What would you recommend to them right now? Maybe three tips that helped you that you look back on and you think were just like fundamental things for you to become where you are today and become the person you are today. Yeah. Um, I, so the first thing is if you're thinking of a career in aviation, um, tr try your best to ignore the career uh, in the future and enjoy getting your private because getting your private should be an enjoyable process. Learning to fly should be enjoyable. Forget about the career until after you've got the private. Once you've got the private, you'll know whether or not you're going to continue it, uh, continue with it as a career. Uh, so just enjoy the, enjoy the training of the, of the private first. Um, if you get into the industry, this is the second tip. Uh, remember this is a really small industry no ego um, and don't piss anybody off because the next guy you piss off is going to be the next person that could open a door to somewhere that you want to go. So just remember, it's a real small industry. And then once you're, I think you're established in the industry, I think the best advice I can give is because it's such a up and down industry with so many peaks and troughs, uh, make a decision on whether, you know, an airline, a position or whatever it happens to be and stick with it for five years. Don't change anything for five years. Um, and, and let the peaks and troughs during that five years, uh, or what, however long you, you, you want to, to do this, but I would say five, let the peaks and troughs happen, the good times or bad times. And then at the end of the years, decide whether or not you want to do another five. Um, and uh, whether you want to change airlines, whether you want to change career, but if you if you decide uh, that you're doing another five years, stick with it, and then go through the ups and downs that will inevitably occur during that next five years, and see how you feel at the end of it. Perfect, I love it, Steve. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a lot of fun talking with you. Uh, you have a crazy story, man. It, I'm really excited that you came on to share that, and I really think it's going to resonate now with people and just kind of hear. Just there's different ways to go about the career and just to constantly search or not search, but constantly just take what's next, you know, go to the airport, go show up, go, go do your work and good things happen. So it's really cool to talk to you and I wish you nothing but the best. And uh, maybe one day we can have you back on to talk more fairy stories. I'm sure there's a ton more stories that you could share. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot. If, um, and I, I don't mind promoting this because again, it goes to the charity, but the, the book is called Rubber Suits and Lukewarm Soup. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's, uh, some silly, crazy stories. Uh, so, uh, yeah, grab, grab that. <laughs> well, he said, go do it, <laughs> go grab it. But yeah, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Justin. 
Aviation, that's a wrap of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, like I said earlier, subscribe, follow, like, do all those fun things. Check out Pilot's Coffee. Seriously, the best coffee in the game. Love that stuff so much. I know it's my own coffee. I have to say that, but it's legit. Aviation, uh, like I said in the last one, we are on the rush to baby. Uh, 1224 is the due date. I am recording this a couple weeks before it comes out, so who knows if the baby's here? We'll have to see. As I said in the last one, uh, we're taking bets to see what comes first, episode 200 or the baby. So let me know what you think. Davey Nation, I hope you're having a great day. And as always, happy flying.